Today's passage is just one proverb. It's Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I would imagine that when you think of the worst sins that you can commit, worry is probably on the lower end of the spectrum of sins, the sin list. I mean, there's a a lot of, quote, bad sins, lust, murder, adultery. But worry, well, that's, that's benign. It's harmless, sort of. You know why we think that way? Because, first of all, everyone does it. No one is immune from worry. Not only that, we do it almost all the time. And it happens so regularly with so many people that we just think, it can't be that bad. There's a book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins, and he lists worry as one of those respectable sins. And if you know anything about the book, he talks about these, quote, respectable sins because we who are, quote, good people tend to sin these respectable sins. And so, yeah, it's the murderer and the drug dealer that are the really evil people, but us respectable people, we don't do those really bad things. So therefore, it's not that bad at all. And his argument is, no, it's really bad. We just like calling it not so bad. And I I sort of liken worry to something like this. Remember when COVID first came to the Bay Area? In uh, February, March of 2020, there was one case of one gentleman who had COVID. And at that time, nobody cared. I mean, no one noticed it. But who would have had uh, ever imagined that that one man with that one virus would have impacted so many lives for the past two years? And that one small virus would have killed so many people. That's sort of the way I think of worry. Worry is something that when you consider it, you don't really imagine it to be that bad. But left unchecked, worry is just as destructive as any virus could ever be. And so what I'd like to do is look at this passage from Proverbs of worry and then look at the rest of the Bible when it comes to worry. We'll look at three aspects of worry. First, the idolatry of worry. Second, the weight of worry. And then third, the cure for worry. So first, the idolatry of worry. To grasp the severity of worry, you have to understand exactly what worry is. Worry is ultimately a dependence on yourself and a lack of dependence on God. It is failing to trust God at the core. And it's ultimately trusting yourself to be the savior of yourself. So in your mind and in your heart, you're filled with all these thoughts And they are concerning the circumstances of life and all that you're experiencing. And they suddenly come into your heart and they start marinating in your soul. And you examine it and you start trying to figure out solutions and you research and you plan, you strategize. How can I fix this? How can I deal with this situation? It's essentially self-salvation or self-rescue. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says this, do not be anxious about your life. Why does he say this? Because Jesus knows so clearly that you and I, we are going to worry. 
And so he tells everyone, well, don't. Consider all of the different worries. I mean, small list. Who are you going to marry if you're a single person? What school are you going to get into if you're applying to colleges as a senior in high school or a junior? <laughs> How are you going to do on your SATs or your ACTs? Um, will you get good test results from your doctor? Will you make the team? Will you have good friends? Will you find the right church? Will you ever be free of physical chronic pain? Will there be a war? Will there be a nuclear war? Will the economy improve? Will there be inflation? When will COVID truly end? Will it ever end? So the list is endless. I think you can all agree that there are hundreds, if not thousands of potential worries. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus tells us the reason why we should not worry. Matthew 6.32, Jesus says, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So God is not caught unawares by your concerns. He knows everything about them. And he also tells us that you don't need to worry about it because God knows your needs better than you yourself need them. But always the tension point is, I actually want to know the solutions. I want to figure it out for myself. And Christians believe God is true and faithful. Non-Christians don't believe God and therefore believe that they are the ultimate source of their freedom from worry. Those who do not know Christ, these so-called Gentiles in Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus that Jesus refers to, they have another God besides the God of the Bible. They have the God of themselves. And you have to depend on yourself to figure things out, to make things work. And so you worry. You worry about loss. You worry about gain. You worry about not having enough friends. You worry about whether your friends are the friends you actually hope for. Again, the worries that are in our lives are endless. Now, right before Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, and we're told where Jesus says, do not worry, he actually says something else in Matthew 6, 19. Look at what he says. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Do you know what happens when, you are, when we are all busy focusing on our treasures on earth, on our lives? on our families, on what we work for, we worry. We worry whether we're going to lose them or whether it's going to be corrupted, whether it's going to make it through. Some of us are, as we're going to discuss in the parenting seminar, you're weighing all of the, the issues of parenting and of your children, and it's a challenge to think, what are they going to be like when they're 20 years old? If you start thinking that way, wow, the worries start flooding our souls. Maybe we're always checking our bank accounts, making sure we have enough. How are our investments doing? And you're always examining, looking at it. There's a worry behind that. We're always researching and plotting. We are anxious. Our treasures, we're concerned for them. Our treasures could be our children, our money, our, our future. Is it, are we going to be successful? Are we going to be safe? Our health could be our treasure. And so all of this 
Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. You know you are laying up for yourself treasures on earth when you worry. So worry is sort of that indicator light in your heart that says, you actually care way too much about what you are holding on to here. And in that sense, we're busy praying to the God of the self. And then Jesus goes on to say in chapter 6, verse 24 of Matthew, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. When we worry, we cannot say we trust Christ. We actually are saying, I serve money, not God. And money, the reason I say money is because money is essentially your security, your wealth, your treasure, your hope, your rescuer, your savior. And so ultimately it's your God. Either you're going to trust God with your life or yourself with your life. You can't say, I actually believe in both. Your actions and your worries reveal whom you truly trust. So that's the idolatry of worry. And I hope that you see that, how that just plays out in our hearts. Second is the weight of worry. And we see this in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Anxiety is what Jesus calls a divided mind. And he does this in Matthew 6, 25. When he says, do not be anxious, the word anxious literally means someone who has a divided, compartmentalized mind. And so imagine your mind is a place where there's all these compartments. And in these compartments or these rooms, you have each one is filled with all sorts of different areas of your life. Well, I have friends. Will I make enough money? Am I going to get that promotion? How's my health going to be? How are my children? Am I going to have a future spouse? And the, again, all these worries, every one of them is filled in each room of your mind. And so you have a divided mind and it's filled with all these concerns and it controls you. It keeps you awake at night. When you're walking around, there's just this tension and there's a burden, you feel it. A great example of this compartmentalized, divided mind of anxiety is the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. I think you can recall the story. Martha, she is a really competent person. And so she invites Jesus to dinner. Now I'm gonna sort of um, imagine this event a little bit. It's not what you're gonna see in the Bible per se, but it's what I imagine. So you have Martha working so hard. She's invited Jesus to dinner and Jesus has accepted. And so what is she busy doing? She's busy cleaning the whole house, right? And Martha's also the type of person who's thinking, I can't just serve hot dogs and, you know, and potato chips. She's not gonna do that. She's gonna create a huge feast for him and with hors d'oeuvres and charcuterie and some wine and, and she just, you know, all the table is just, there's a tablecloth and the, the good silverware is out and things that you use for a special guest and every single aspect. And so she's busy cutting. She doesn't have a sous chef, so she's just cutting and, you know, getting the food processor all going and everything. You, know, you, you understand. 
Mary, though, she's just standing at the window waiting for Jesus to come. And here comes Jesus. He's walking down the, down the pathway into the house. And he comes in. Martha comes in out with the apron on and, you know, with her hair tussled from all the food. Well, she, actually, she, because she's very competent, she doesn't have her hair tussled. She looks really great. And uh, she comes and, you know, she greets Jesus says, take a seat, brings out the, the hors d'oeuvres and, and the appetizers and just a really great spread of hors d'oeuvres. And Jesus, do you want to drink? What do you want to drink? Goes back and going back and forth to the kitchen. And Mary, she's just still sitting there talking to Jesus, just hearing the stories, hearing about the Father, hearing about the kingdom of God. And she's just soaking it all in. And Mary, as she's working hard, sweating, she starts looking over at Mar uh, Martha, and she starts looking over at Mary, and she's starting to get frustrated. And she's thinking, is she not going to help me? I I'm doing this all for him. And why doesn't Jesus say anything? And Mary, you're my little sister. How can you not be helping me? So she's getting really angry, complaining in her heart. But outside, she has this smile, because she doesn't want to look bad in front of Jesus, so she's... You know, going back and forth, back and forth. And finally, she's like, Jesus, can't you say something? Do you know how hard I've worked to do this for you? Can't you say something to Mary? And look at what Jesus says. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary's chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. That phrase, you are anxious and troubled about many things, is the compartmentalized brain. Because she has 20 things going on in her mind. Not just all the things she has to do, but also, well, why, why is Mary not helping me? And why is Jesus not saying anything about Mary helping me? And but at the same time, she's thinking about making sure the drinks are okay. Oh, you know, if I don't, if I don't bring it out at the right time, then it's going to get cold. So I have to somehow time it so that everything's correct. And, and oh, that, you know, the chair's a little bit, oh, there's a stain on there. I can't believe it. She's going to see. So her mind is filled with so many things that she cannot focus on the necessary one thing. And the necessary one thing is what Mary is focused on, which is, being enraptured by the Savior. The worry keeps her focused not on Jesus, but on who? On herself. See, that's the thing about worry is worry is self-worship. You're more concerned about what you think about yourself and what others think about you than serving others, caring for others, and most of all, thinking about Christ himself, about who God is. And we get overwhelmed by it. We want to look good, to make sure we're well put together in front of everyone. And suddenly, what flows out of that worry is criticism and complaints. Those two things often go together, worry and criticism. The more you worry, the more you'll find something to criticize other people about. And that just leads to more worry, which leads to more criticism. It becomes this vicious cycle of endless worry, endless frustration, and angst. And that is an incredible burden for us to bear. Look at Proverbs 12, 25 again. 
Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. It is a crushing burden, a tremendous weight. It, for those of you who perhaps if you've ever lost a lot of weight um, due to exercise and maybe you've lost tens of pounds, that's usually due to all this discipline, tremendous discipline. Well, it's not just the look of a person that changes. It's also the impact on the whole body, the joints, knees and ankles and you know, every part of your body is impacted by weight. But once that weight is lifted, there's a, a freedom. Your heart has to not work as hard anymore because prior to it, the weight is being borne by all the muscles and all the aspects of your body. But once it's lifted, there's a freedom, a lightness. You know, spiritually speaking, it's the same. When you worry less, your spiritual heart, your psychological and emotional health, it just increases, it flourishes. But when we are most worried, you will find that your levels of anxiety just increase. When you come home and you're overwrought with worry, you've come back from work and you enter into home, what's your instinct towards the people all around you? Towards the child that left the Lego right on the floor and you stepped right on it and you know how that feels get angry and frustrated. Then you hear too much noise here and get frustrated again and angry. You could see how it all plays out. Why? Because I'm consumed with myself. That's the problem of worry. We cannot see God at all in the midst of our lives. Worry causes us to be self-focused, self-centered. And then self-pity starts flowing in. Well, no one cares about me. I work so hard all day, I come home and this is the thanks that I get. No one's bringing, welcoming me, bringing food to me, where's my drink? You just, this is Martha's heart, but it's our heart. She was troubled and distracted. She was full of what Jesus says is earthly cares. While Jesus was in her midst, if you were to think, well, if Jesus was in my midst, I wouldn't worry. No, you would. You have the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is the promise of the presence of Christ. But whether Jesus was there physically in your midst or the Holy Spirit, we still worry. We are still concerned. We are no different. We are double-minded. And James says the double-minded, compartmentalized, anxious, worried person is unstable in all of his ways, James 1.8. That's the worried person. So what hope do we have? Thankfully, Scripture shows us there is a cure for worry. The first cure for worry is prayer. Paul tells us about this cure in Philippians 4, 6-7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I want you to think of worry as prayer. But worry is prayer to the God of yourself. When you are worrying, you are praying to yourself. You are communicating to yourself. You are saying, oh, great self, God, please fix all of my problems. Help me to feel secure. And so you start contemplating and scheming and strategizing and planning and thinking and researching and 
and you're, we're so consumed with our thoughts and our hearts and we're, we're really hoping that we rescue ourselves and then we say, okay, I got to come up with a plan and it's by our strength, by our merit, by our righteousness, by our power. You have a choice when you worry. You're either going to pray to yourself, the God of yourself, which is our default, or we're going to pray to the God of the world, of the universe, of all creation, of the the heavenly father whose heart is to provide you freedom. The freedom that only he can give you. The lightness that he can give you. The next time you are tempted to worry, and it probably will be as soon as you walk through these doors, or maybe that's happening right now, I really want to ask you to consider to go to God in prayer. Test him. Try him out. See if he will not answer. Cry out to him. Ask him for help. This is how Peter describes it in, in uh, 1 Peter. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast is throw. It's literally to take, if you could, um, I mean, I know some of you have a really strong throwing arm. Take the worries of your life and throw them on God. He's saying, send them my way. Won't you test me? Send them towards me, and I promise you, I care for you. You will see it, but you have to actually do it. You have to start doing it, and here's the thing. He says, you know, if I've not even withheld my own son from you, Romans 8.32, how will I not also graciously give you all things? But test me. Try me. Don't just try to pray to yourself all the time and saying, oh, great Sam God, please try to figure out your own life by yourself. Try it out. Test me and see if it won't actually help you. So when you pray to him, now here's the thing. The answer is not going to be that all of your life's problems are going to go away, that whatever you prayed for, it's going to happen exactly how you prayed for it. The end goal of your worry is not that you get what you want. It's that you get the God who actually cares for you. And when that happens, regardless of the answer, you can still have an incredible amount of peace, freedom, joy, because there's trust. That you know if God says no, he's shifting you away from one answer to another, one request to somewhere else, you can fully trust that he has your best in mind. He's not going to let you go. And even when it is dark and most difficult, he is faithful to you. He will care for you. In 1844, Joseph Scriven came upon a horrific scene. He had been engaged to be married, and as he was riding his horse, he saw a, a bed of water, and in it was this woman. She had drowned. And when he went to look closer, he saw his fiancée lying in that water dead. She had fallen off a horse and drowned in the water. And then years later, he was to be married, but his fiancée had fallen ill and died. His second fiancée, the second time this has happened, two women he had loved had tragically died before he was to marry. Years later, he constructed a poem for his mother. And this poem goes like this. It says, 
What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Do you think you could sing and write that song after having your two fiancés die tragically and still believe that you can bring to God even that in prayer and have God's peace? This is the power of prayer. The promise of God is, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but you have to cast your cares on him. You have to trust him with every worry of your life. Do not let it sink deep into your soul and create a root of bitterness. I always say these type of things not because it's just to you. It's to me too. I preach to myself every Sunday and every day that I'm working on the message and I'm thinking, oh, God, it's so hard because I'm the first person who needs to hear this. What a friend we have in Jesus. The second powerful weapon we have to fight worry is the gospel. It's the most powerful weapon. And we see this in Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. What a blessing it is to have others around us. This is why coming together now every Sunday, it is such a blessing. We, we took that for granted for far too long. But you know, we need to physically be together, really. We need to see faces. The, sometimes the scrunching of faces to see the worries, the lines that are slowly appearing. Actually, they're not slowly. They've appeared on my face all over. Worry lines. Graying of hairs. I see more gray hair than ever before as I look around. Why does that happen? Worry. We might not even say it, but it's deep in our hearts, and we can't help but feel the tension, the burden, the weight. Proverbs says, but a good word makes him glad. Who gives the good word? We do to each other. God's word. The good word is God's word. And we need to be open, first of all, to each other. There should always be an openness when someone says, hey, can I share a word with you from, from Scripture? Here's what, and I just feel the Lord has impressed it upon my heart to share this with you. Or you're texting it to someone. Those are things you should be constantly doing for one another. And we should be receiving it and saying, thank you so much, I needed that. The good word makes us glad. I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes our gathering and our in how important it is for us to share God's word with one another. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. When you are facing trial and difficulty, 
sometimes our hearts are so overburdened, it's hard to hear God's word when we read it, when we think about it ourselves. And that's when someone else comes along and shares a word with us and it just lifts our soul because the, the word in our heart is weaker sometimes than the word in another's who cares for us, who loves us. The reality is I am prone to being double-minded and compartmentalized and overwrought with anxiety. I need, brothers and sisters, I need you to share God's word in my life. And I need you, we need each other to share each other God's word in our lives. That's why we have discipleship groups or listen to sermons or read books that speak of God's word or have Bible studies together because we, and you probably have experienced this, you don't feel like going to a study or a discipleship group. or, And then you get there and God's word is shared and you go, wow, I needed that. But our worries are so clouding our hearts and overwhelming and the burden is so great that you think I have no room for anything else. I don't want to. I, I'm tired. I'm weak. You're weighed down. <laughs> Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. We need the good word. But it's not just a good word. It's as the rest of the New Testament shows us. It's the good news. The good word is the good news. But actually Proverbs says this as well. Proverbs 15.30. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. And good news refreshes the bones. Proverbs 25.25. Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. There is no truer and sweeter good news than the good news of the gospel, the best news of all. It's what lightens our soul. It is more powerful than prayer itself. It is the gospel. It is knowing that Christ has borne every single burden and worry on a tree. He has taken that upon himself so that you could be forever freed from the power of worry. And he has done that so that you know, no matter what storms come, even if you were to lose loved ones, even if the most difficult person in your life were to enter into your life, someone whom you care about, it could be a child. Sometimes adult children can be our greatest enemy. Or sometimes the, just the rigors of facing a person who is hurting us. How do you deal with that? It's not going to be by your own willpower and strength. It's not going to be through worry. It is knowing that there is good news that saves you, that has rescued you. I want to give you an example of this. In Acts chapter 16, verses 28 through 34, we hear about the Philippian jailer. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all. The Philippian jailer had thought when the doors had opened and Paul and Silas and everyone else could go free, you know what, I, what was at stake for him? First of all, if everyone did escape, he would have been executed. But not just him, probably his family, possibly. 
Definitely, at the very least, they would have, he would have been jobless, and that meant there would be no opportunities for him to care for his family. So can you imagine the concerns? His life was at stake. His family's life was at stake. Their ability to care for themselves. Everything was there for them. To, for, all these worries were coming into his heart. It was so bad that he was ready to kill himself. And what was Paul's answer to that worry? It was to preach the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house. The good news of the gospel of Christ, that Christ Jesus, God the Son, came to rescue us from this constant burden of life, to free you to everlasting joy forever and ever, that good news of the gospel transformed his life. And it is often thought historically that the Philippian jailer, along with Lydia and his family, were one of the first members of the Philippian church to now go forth and bring the gospel to that area. It's also thought of as one of the most cherished churches that Paul experienced ministry from. Because these people, they knew what they had been rescued from. This is the freedom that the Lord promises us when we trust in this gospel of grace. As Jesus says in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. Therefore, do not worry. Do not be anxious. Cast your cares. Remember, we have a friend in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Let's pray together. Father, I do want to lift up to you all of our burdens, all of our concerns. We turn to you and we realize that we have prayed far too often to this idolatrous God called the self. The self loves the self, always trying to find rescue and freedom and salvation from the self but it leads to nothing more than continued futility and frustration, more worry, more burden, more anxiety, and it just destroys our soul. Help us, O oh Lord. I want to invite you to take a few moments, about a minute or so, to come before the Lord and I want to ask that you contemplate all the different anxieties and worries in your heart right now. And I want you to cast them on the Lord because he cares for you. Confess that to him and, and recognize that when you lay that before his feet, when you pray, he will free you. He will guard your heart and your mind. He will make your heart happy and glad. He will lighten the load. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me before I am light. I want to give you a light burden. I'm going to exchange your heavy burden for my lightness. I want to ask that you take that moment. Let's do that together and confess before him all of our worries and concerns. And Lord Jesus, we cast them all on you 
You're the only one who has strong enough shoulders to bear our burdens. But you bore them on a tree. And as we come to this table, we remember that. So we lay them at your feet. We want to cease striving and know that you are God.